You're listening to On Human Rights, where we interview experts from around the world on the most important issues and trends in the fields of human rights and humanitarian law. We're broadcasting from the Raoul Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and Humanitarian Law in Lund, Sweden. I'm Gabriel Stein. Today we're joined by Suzanne Dovey. She's a Fulbright Fellow at Pluricourts and the Political Science Department at the University of Oslo in Norway. Her work focuses on representation of historically disadvantaged groups, human rights, accountability, and democracy theory. Suzanne, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be in Sweden. <laughs> How did you, uh, let's just start at the beginning. How did you get interested in human rights? Um, I'm actually a d democratic theorist, and one of the things that um, one of the reasons why democracy is important for human rights is there's a strong correlation between being a democratic regime and defending human rights. But what's interesting, um, what's happening in democracies is that they're now increasingly illiberal forms of democracy. So democracies that don't support freedom of speech or freedom of association, freedom of religion. And so I become interested in how, why democracy no longer provides accountability. And that means that we have to start thinking about democratic regimes that will actually um, support the violation of human rights. And so as a result, I become folk, have become focused on um, trying to distinguish authoritarian and um, democratic real demo real dem democratic regimes mm. and why do they call it illiberal um this that's a term used by Zacharia um Farid Zacharia mm -hmm. and he argues that a lot of the benefits of democracy come from having a liberal constitutionalism so a constitution that supports individual rights from the state Right now you're doing research on the International Criminal Court. Why are you interested in that? So um, currently the International Criminal Court is in the process of revising its um, how, how victims can participate. And there are three main ways of holding government accountable, transparency, sanctioning power, and participation. And so I am interested in why participa par participation doesn't produce the self-correction mechanisms we anticipated. So, um, you know, we have a lot, of, a lot of examples of what's wrong with ICC. I like to point out that, like, you often have sometimes as many as 3,000 victims being represented by two lawyers. They've never even met with their lawyers. The courts changed lawyers mid-proceedings without even notifying it. So the victims found out they have a new lawyer by watching television. And so they've done a really bad job. They've done a really great job of putting into the Rome suit, Rome statute, beautiful language that seems to say, let's grant victims participatory rights as much as possible. That's consistent with the rights of the accused. But what they've done is systemically undermine that in um, pretrial chambers. So as a result, victims have beautiful rights on paper, but in practice, they're not being supported um, by the prosecutors or their judge rulings. Before we get into more of the details of that, I'm just curious, the ICC, I mean, we're both American. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I have a little shame there. <laughs> so the, the, um, I didn't even have to ask the question. <laughs> so um, the U.S. Is not, does not support 
were not signatories for um, the Rome Statute. And as a result, we don't have a voice um, in how it's being set up or influenced. And it's funny because I think Americans think of themselves as like defenders of human rights. And ironically, the one international organization used to really go after the bad guys um, – they are usually guys, <laughs> um, are, is not being supported by our government. So you're out there in Arizona. I mean, are there a lot of people like you in universities in the U.S. <laughs> studying these, you know, the ICC and, and trying to bring it up in an academic context for some future uh, discussion about whether the U.S. should be more involved or is it just something that you're more interested in because you're interested in it in itself? Um, in terms of, I would say, a lot of academics are aware of the global irresponsibility of the United States. Um, so that's not that's not doing something cutting edge. I think in terms of Americans, Americans don't vote for, um, for foreign policy. I mean, you can see this by, you know, it doesn't seem to matter if candidates know anything about the world. So um, as a result, I would say, um, I'm interested in this because I think that when we look back at the really horrific events of our times, we're going to be horrified, <laughs> not only by what we didn't do to stop things, but also by, you know, our, the United States' self-absorption with itself, you know, that we care more about the Kardashians than global warming is sort of unforgivable um, in terms of the future of humans. <laughs> That's... And, uh, okay, so you're looking at this so-called participatory regime. Um, why is that for you something that's important to be looking into? Um, so one of the reasons why they created the Rome um, the Rome Statue the way they did and and gave um, victims participatory rights was because of their experiences with the International Criminal Tribunal of Rwanda. And what we saw there was, for instance, um, a woman who had been multiply raped and three of the judges laughed at them. One woman was questioned over a thousand asked uh, over a thousand questions about her her gang rape experience. And we really saw an insensitivity towards not only the experiences of victims, but a refusal to um, sort of protect, I think even most important, that um, victims had repercussions when they went back. They're, they're, they were promised the right to be anonymous, and that wasn't kept. And so I think there was a real expectation that if you didn't, that something was bro broken about the legitimacy of the courts and that, you know, even though it's an international court dealing with a domestic genocide, you still want people to have, like, we're doing this for them, right? And so what's, what I think victims want different things from the courts. So, for instance, they've done... Um, Berkeley's done a survey of what victims wanted. And what victims wanted was things like convictions and individual reparations. I want my land back, right? And what the court has given them is collective reparations. And I like to say <laughs> three convictions and $1 billion later. So um, what that means is uh, there's a real – there, you know – 
if you think about what that money could have been done in these impoverished countries, it really makes you think of, well, are we spending this money so that we feel better, we being Western liberal democracies feel better about the outcomes um, of a really um, horrible event, right? Or are we doing this because we want to help these people? And I think getting people's voices into, you know, one argument is, you know, I really want to know what happened to my family members, right? And yet, how well is the court um, asking questions of the accused about what happened, actually. If it is one of its functions as a truth-finding, um, it's not really responding to the variations, not just getting the convictions, but um, thinking through what's what would pr- produce restorative justice in a, or reconciliation in a really war-torn environment. So, so what have you found, then, when it comes to the International Criminal Court and, and the way victims experience it all? So, because I think it's interesting, one of the things they've found is, you know, a lot of what academics like to do is sort of expose problems. I think we're skeptical a lot, and so we like to say, oh, everybody's doing it all wrong. And one of my challenges is not just to be critical, but to be constructive. And so one of the, I love drawing on interdisciplinary fields. And so I looked at the organizational accountability literature and showed that it really does matter how you structure your accountability mechanisms. So for instance, if I ask someone, you know, for to be accountable, you know, fill out your annual report, you're going to glow about all the decisions you're made. If you ask them, a person and they're going to justify your decisions, right? But if you want if I want you to correct your performance, it's much better to ask people to explain the process, right? How did you go about prioritizing your work? What do you wish you had done differently? That kind, those kinds of questions. And so one of the things that I think is important for, um, for instance, a lot of the participatory rights are being denigrated, I would say, because of prosecutor, prosecutorial discretion. But I want the prosecutors to have to justify their decisions. Why did you choose the refugee camp and not the village next to the refugee camp to be included in your indictment? Why did you pick that year, not the, not the next month, right? And so you have to ask people to provide a what's their explanation um, in order for them to self-correct. I don't have a good reason is not a good, is not adequate when you're deciding, you know, whether something should be historically recorded as a crime whether certain people are subject to reparations, and whether people find out what happened to their loved ones. So um, that's one instance of what I recommend um, people to do. The other thing um, that's really important is there's a, obviously there's a really big gap between where the ICC has, where the lawyers are. Some, some places don't even have field offices, and there's not really good form of communication. And so I I think it's really important that if we want victims' voices to influence these proceedings for a better historical junction, all the reasons I mentioned before, um, one of the things that needs to happen is better methods of communication um, and informing people. It's not enough that you meet with victims 50 at a time. Um, 
you know, there needs to be um, educating victims about the processes and the implications of the processes as well and having them have a say before, um, for instance, charges are made. The Rome Statute says explicitly that victims have a right to um, f- to voice their concerns and interests at all stages of the proceedings, but um, that has not been upheld by um, the pretrial chamber's rulings. How did, can you talk a little bit about how you did your research? Um, so I am currently at the Plurry Courts, um, and what that's meant is I have access to really world-top scholars, lawyers, um, judges. So I, I didn't – I'm not an anthropologist, so I didn't interview victims. I tend to more draw on both quantitative and qualitative data to sort of piece together my, my research. So that means interviews with prosecutors. Prosecutors and other academics and um, judges. So far, we've talked a lot about your uh, research into the International Criminal Court, but you're also working on a new book, uh, The Politics of Non-Presence. Give us the kind of elevator pitch. Why should someone read it? Um, So we need to change how we think about um, democracy. And well, before... um, Thinking about democracy was like, let's get everyone involved in politics. Let's all, if we only like vote, if we only all vote, or only all become more um, inso- political insiders, we can exercise our politics. But that conception of dem- democracy no longer works. If you think about what's happening in Egypt and in the Middle East, what we find is that there's tremendous number of choices and tremendous voter participation. What we don't find is democratic accountability. And so here we have to start thinking about how non-presence interacts with presence. That maybe, you know, how you get influence is not, you know, getting more women, evaluating are there's more women in politics. There's actually more more women than men in Rwanda, and it's not a democratic regime. And in fact, one of the things that we've found is that democracy doesn't relate to the number of women. So what we can find is, is that authoritarian regimes can fake inclusion. And so if we need, you know, we, if you look at China, China's having deliberative institutions, but somehow the local deliberative institutions don't translate into power at the central state. So what that means is you need to think about the interactions between being there and not being there in order to assess how good a democracy is. And, and this non-presence then is? Um, there's actually different types, so <laughs> don't get a academic starting on different directions. But you can think of it as silence. Um, so Tally Mendelberg's book, The Silent Sex, found that um, the men interrupting women affects the influence on deliberations. So you can speak, and if you're interrupted, you're not as effective. Um, so there are different forms of non-presence. Sometimes it's when you are self-silenced, right? And sometimes it's when you're quieted. So th- there's, it's really important to think both if you believe in the value of deliberations as well as, um, you know, the most Koch brothers can exercise a lot of power in the United States, not by elect, getting, becoming president, right? But by being outside of government, looking in. So um, we have to think about how those actors exercise their influence if we're going to say how well our democracy is doing. I'm not interrupting, right? (laughs) That was great. (laughs) 
was waiting to see if you were done. Last, we have to uh, we have to wrap it up, but I just want to ask you really quickly about your uh, work on Gequal, which is a nonprofit trying to get more women judges on human rights tribunals. Tell me a bit about that. So, um, especially among Western liberal democracies, um, you see a lot of commitment to domestic parity or gender equality of politicians. I mean, it's nowhere near equal, but you know it usually hovers somewhere around 25, 20 to twenty five percent. The United States being an exception, we only have nineteen percent of women in Congress. But what that what we find is that that commitment to gender equality seems to diminish at the international level. So even though we recognize that rape is um, a crime against humanity and a war crime, what we don't see is that, for instance, in the Inter-American Human Rights um, Commission, there are no currently no women judges in the. Um, European Court of Justice, there's only nine out of 95 um, women on the on the court. So it seems that we've hit an international um, glass ceiling. And a lot of this comes because the process for appointing and nominating judges is not transparent. And so it tends to be more of an old boys network. And as a result, um, we don't have the diverse, the commitment to diverse views of justice at the international level that we do at the domestic level. Sounds like important work. I really want to thank you for coming out to visit us and uh, to take the time to join the podcast. Uh, Suzanne Dobby, thank you very much. Thank you so much. <laughs> On Human Rights is broadcast from the Raoul Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and Humanitarian Law in Lund, Sweden. I'm Gabriel Stein. We'll be back soon with more. Until then, thanks for listening.